This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Y'all, we have a treat for you today. Pastor Eric Parton and his wife Darlene are with us today. Eric serves as one of our overseers. Eric and Darlene are, um, I would say, two people who over the past five years have had a remarkable amount of influence, not only in my life, but in my family's life. My wife has been so blessed by her relationship with Darlene. I think uh, Darlene is probably one of the premier uh, female leaders in the church in the United States. If you go to their church, there is uh, such a strong culture of young women leading, and uh, it has so much to do with her. Uh, She is legitimately one of the people I call and go, I don't know what to do. Would you please tell me? Eric has become, uh, in many ways, uh, one of the most influential forces in my life. Eric's story is remarkable. He was uh, living in a Merritt Island area where Pastor Dan Stahlbaum had taken over what's now East Coast Christian Church, and he was driving for UPS, and Pastor Dan convinced him and Darlene to take on being youth pastors and then youth and kids pastors. Now, a side note to that, a few weeks ago, as lead pastor, Pastor Eric stepped out of the pulpit for half a year to lead kids ministry again. So right now, he hasn't preached in like a month or two because he's been in kids ministry. I don't know a lead pastor that would do that, except somebody like Eric. He is so creative, so genuine, and so loving. He's the person that when I didn't know, I've called him in moments, and he's like, Kevin, I just, I just want to pray over you right now. And he's one of those people that like, when he starts praying, stuff starts happening. I've watched him. weep and cry as he prayed over my kids. My kids view him kind of as a bonus grandparent. Him and Darlene are so gracious, opened their house to us. and We've been blessed by not just our relationship with them, but our relationship with their church. Eric's one of the funniest, most insightful people. There are very few people that I'd say this to. When he's here, he gets to talk about whatever he wants to as long as he wants to do it. Because he is that for me, and because he's that for me, he's that for our church. So I'm so honored to have him in this moment as we're continuing in Divested. Would you welcome Pastor Eric Parton? Good job. I hate those, inter, those uh, what do you call it, introductions. I wish they'd set the bar a little bit lower. Uh, I used to do a lot of summer camps, and I was doing a camp in Iowa, 
And the guy says, uh, how do you want me to introduce you? And I said, tell him that the guest speaker for summer camp for his teenagers, uh, the flight got canceled, so we got the guy out of the cafeteria to do the speaking. And that's how the kids knew me. And they were like, well, I actually had one student go, you're a pretty good speaker. You should probably do that instead of serving food. Uh, I'm like, I like the bar down here, not there. And he spoke the truth. Darlene, is, when Kevin calls, he's like, what do I do, Eric? I'm like, talk to Darlene. Because I just do whatever she's, I just say what she says to say and dress the way she, she dresses me. Because I can't do any of that stuff. Can some, any guys relate? You know, we think we know how to dress ourselves. And then we get married. And about six months into it, they go, it starts like this. You're not wearing that, are you? No, I just, why? And, you know, years later, we're sitting on the bed with the kids going, Mama's picking our clothes out for school. So, um, so last time we were here was August of last year. And that was a big deal because we'd been living in an RV. That's an RV, Clark. Don't we, you know, <laughs> we've been, the crapper's full. Uh, we, that's the time of year we're coming up to, right? That's, uh, we were living in an RV in our church parking lot because we'd had a tumultuous two or three years um, we had lost, we didn't lose our house. We sold our house, then we got into another house, and then we were buying it, and on closing day, it fell through, and then we couldn't close, and we had to be out of our house in two weeks, so we ended up living in the parking lot of the church for five months, because you know how the real estate, everyone thought, oh, it's going to crash during COVID. Boy, was I wrong. Don't let me ever be your invest, financial investment, investment guy, because uh, so we end up living, when we were here last year, we had just gotten into a house. We'd only been in that house for a month because we were, like I said, we would live for five months in the church parking lot as a, in the RV and people thought I was the security guard. I was like, hey, what are you doing on my property? Uh, so, uh, but a lot has changed since I was here last year. Last year in October, my stepmother passed away. So I had to take care of my, we had to take care of my father who was 86 years old. And so uh, we needed a bigger house and we just bought this house. And so we end up selling his house and buying a bigger house so that we could take care of my father. Beautiful, beautiful house. It was like a dream come true to me. It was on the market for 17 minutes. I found it, made an offer right away because it was just the way it was set up. It's on the water. It's got, Kevin came and visited. We got a dock and I've got a boat ramp and I love to fish and boat. So it was perfect. Uh, so, and that's all since last year. So last year I finally got a house this year. I'm in a different house. How does that work? But the problem with that is, um, the house was built in the nineties, late nineties. And so all the decor is like early two thousands. Okay. Which is great. Cause when you first buy the house, you're so, it's so awesome. You're so, Oh, I just love it because you know, you got a house, especially when you live in a camper, right? You got a house now and I've got a water view. I can lay in my bed and I can see water. And anytime you can see water from your bed, that's a great deal. But then we had some friends that just had built a new house and we went to their open house. Their refrigerator had like a video on it. It had a computer. Like there, everything was, and then you, everything was awesome and the windows were great and the, just the way they did everything. And then you walk back to your house and suddenly those cabinets, they suck, right? That refrigerator doesn't have a computer on it. It doesn't have anything on it because it's, and how come cabinets that we had 20 years ago were great, but now they're just, they, they just don't work and I become dissatisfied with what I have. And I find myself grumbling and complaining about the house. But it goes, it goes that way. I mean, you know, not only is my TV not small enough, it's not thin enough, right? Uh, the decor is, is, is early 2000s. And it's, it's, I, even though the, we have the basics, we have food, we have clothing, we have transportation, I've got a smartphone, 
But when I watch TV, I realize I don't eat the right food. I don't dress the right way. My car isn't electric. And my smartphone isn't smart enough, right? See, all of this eventually leads to what we're going to talk about today. And that's this big word here, discontentment. See, and discontentment, just to kind of explain it for you, is where I'm dissatisfied with what I have and I'm also dissatisfied with what I can actually afford. And the problem is, is that even though my TV is thin, there's another one out there that's thinner. Even though my phone is smart, there's another phone out there that's even smarter. And what I'm constantly reminded of is that it all needs to be upgraded. Now, for you, I, there's a lot of young people in here. I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to believe. There was a time in your parents' life or maybe your grandparents' life when um, people use things until they broke. I know, seems stupid, doesn't it? <laughs> Wait a minute. Why would you do that? You're going to keep that phone until it breaks? Have you seen the newer one? The cooler one? It's much better. Why? It's faster, right? In fact, you're, this is going to freak you out. There were times when your parents' life or your grandparents' life, when people would use things until they broke, and then they would fix them. No, I'm serious. You're thinking, what? wait, don't you know that you can go buy a new one? In fact, Kevin said I used to deliver UPS. On my route was a, a store called a VCR repair store. Anybody remember those? I, in fact, one time the, our VCR wasn't working. What are they, like $15? Take it to the repair store. That'll be $8.95. I took it to the repair store, dropped it off, came back, picked it up later that day, and the, and the VCR repair guy, there's a job that's in high demand. The, what do you do? I'm a VCR repairman. I'm unemployment. Um, he says, I didn't charge you. I was like, oh, really? That's nice. He goes, yeah, I just pulled this peanut butter jelly sandwich out. That's kids. Anybody got kids? That they used to put, it, it's a VCR tape. It's the perfect size, same size as a sandwich. And so my kids would put them in there. But that's crazy because there's, uh, there, and here's another thing. There was also a time, kids, 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 uh, when your dad or your grandpa, they were trying to fix something and they would improvise. You know what improvise is? Improvise is you don't have the right tools to, be, to get done the job that you need to get done. And instead of going down to AutoZone or Home Depot and buying the tool you need, you look around the garage and you improvise, right? I mean, nowadays, we don't think that way. Nowadays, we take something that's perfectly good and we go into the store and we upgrade to a new phone, a new car, a new TV or whatever it is. And we upgrade we, and we replace something that still works. Now, just so you know that I'm not trying to shame you and you're thinking, geez, we should have stayed home and watched the Panthers. <laughs> you don't need to watch the Panthers. <laughs> and don't worry, I'm right there with you. My team is in the same division and nobody is above 500 in that division. Um, this is the ultimate upgrade. Oh my God, we can't play in this stadium anymore. So we're going to upgrade to a new Mercedes-Benz stadium. Anybody recognize that stadium there in Atlanta? We're going to upgrade to this new Mercedes-Benz stadium because this one only seats 80,000 and we want to seat 100,000, right? So if you know a team like a minor league or a college that's looking for a stadium, it only has 6,500 games on it, and we're upgrading to the Mercedes-Benz stadium, right? See, the problem is just about every day, 
because of the internet, because of television, because of marketing, I see something that I don't have. I see a picture or a video of something that I don't have, and, and I see it, and it makes me aware of what I don't have. And it just so happens that when I go shopping, here's the other thing that happens, and some of y'all remember this. You go shopping online. I love to shop online. And when I shop online on Amazon, and I'll pick something out and put it in my cart, you know what comes up? You may also like or customers also viewed, right? Or customers who bought this also bought this. Or I don't even have to buy anything. They can say, recent items that you viewed. I mean, all of those statements, how many have ever seen that, right? So all that does is it just, just uh, fuels that discontentment. Because how in the world are you supposed to be content with what you have when they're constantly bombarding you with the things that you don't have? And let's just be clear, I'm not against marketing. Uh, the problem I have, in fact, the problem isn't even what I have. It's not the cabinets that is the problem with me or the refrigerator or the TV is the problem with me or the phone. It's the awareness of what I don't have. Because here's one of the most important principles that you're ever gonna hear. And I didn't come up with this. I'm not that smart. I probably got it from Darlene or something. But, and, and, and you don't even have to be a religious person. You don't have to be a Christian to adhere to this or can improve your life. But this has nothing to do with religion, but it can save you down the road. And that is awareness is what fuels discontentment. The awareness is what fuels discontentment. That's why I'm so discontent with what I have because I become aware, even though what I have might be good, I become aware of something out there that's better. And so that makes me discontent with what I have. So awareness actually of being aware of what's out there becomes, that's what fuels the discontentment in me. And this explains also why getting more stuff doesn't solve the problem. In fact, it's quite the opposite, guys. You know, if you have a hobby, golfing, fishing, boating, whatever it is, as soon as you acquire something, you look in the catalog and you want something else. The more I get, the more I want. And that's because what we're talking about is an appetite. And if you know anything about appetites, the more you feed an appetite, the more it grows. In fact, let me just give you an example. This Thursday, some of you will sit down with family at the, to have the best Thanksgiving meal that you've ever had. And you'll get up from the table or you'll loosen your belt at the table and you'll say something like, I can't eat another thing. I'm stuffed. And later that night, when everybody's snoozing in the, the, the lazy boy, you'll sneak back into the refrigerator and you'll make yourself another turkey sandwich or another piece of pumpkin pie or pecan pie. And later that night, you'll be in bed going, oh, why did I eat that? I can't sleep, right? See, you, the, we live in a world where every single day someone is, a feeding, someone is feeding this appetite that we all have for more. Now, to be fair, there's nothing sinister with advertising. There's nothing wrong with marketing. It's all perfectly acceptable. Now, it is a little spooky when I talk about possibly taking a vacation with my family to Iceland and I'm in the living room talking and then I open up my Facebook and there's an ad for Iceland and Alexa swears she has nothing to do with it, that's a little unsettling. But you know what else is unsettling? A lot of credit card debt. You know what else is unsettling about not having enough savings because I have so much stuff sitting around my garage or my apartment or my storage unit? You know what else is unsettling about not having any financial margin? You know what margin is? Margin is the space between you and the edge. And when you don't have margin in your finances, you also don't have peace because peace is only found in the, mar in the margins. 
And what else is unsettling is that I've acquired so much stuff that I may feel generous in my heart, but I can't be generous with my checkbook because of all the stuff that I've either purchased or I'm trying to get. So there's nothing wrong with, with marketing. There's nothing wrong with advertising. But there is a problem when it gets out of control. There is a problem when, when it becomes my focus. What's the next thing I want? What's the next thing I'm going to get? What's the next thing that's coming? And here's another thing you need to know before I go any further, because I don't want you to... Not all discontentment is bad. Discontentment can be good. If you've got, you got a bad habit in your life, you know it's New Year's and you're going to make a resolution because you're tired of dealing with that, you decide you... That kind of discontentment is good. You know, there's something that's in your heart to do something, a project or to help someone. That kind of discontentment is good. Maybe you're at a ceiling in your career and you decide that you're going to do something about it. So you go to get extra training or get your master's degree or whatever. That kind of discontentment is good. Dissatisfaction with the status quo has led to some of the big, the, the most unique solution to the problems in this world because someone was discontent with the way things were. So that's, a, that's okay. But the other thing about discontentment is you can't take, because I can sit here and say, uh, talk about discontentment, and you go, I'm not going to be discontent. It doesn't work that way. You can't just go, well, I'm just going to leave here from church. I'm going to be content with what I have. No, you have to replace it with something else. But when you finally get to this place where you can curb discontentment, where you can replace that discontentment for more, more, more with something else, what we're going to find out through Scripture is that the Apostle Paul says that when you get to that place, you will get to a place where you finally uh, discover or encounter what true life is really about. So I want to kind of flesh this out. So we're going to actually look at a passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul, who if you're not familiar with the Bible stuff, the Apostle Paul wrote a lot of what we call letters or books to churches, and he also wrote some to some individuals. And he wrote one of these letters to a young pastor named Timothy. And uh, we call them books now, but they, he, they were basically just letters. And he makes some statements to Timothy that really are so powerful that, again, you don't have to be a Christ follower. If you can, you may, because maybe you're here this morning, someone dragged you to church, maybe it's a pretty girl, and she said, I'll go on a date with you. Was it Maddie? Um, was it, <laughs> I was like, Maddie, I told Maddie, I was like, you're so pretty. How are you not married? Are you crazy? Are you mental? I mean, what's going on there? I said, so she said she has high standards. And I said, yeah, my wife did too. <laughs> anyway, I should have said, yeah. Anyway, uh, what was I talking about? Discontentment. Yeah, there's some, power, there's, some power, there's some statements that it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. They're so powerful that, that you can benefit from it. In fact, uh, I'm just going to tell you from when I usually preach here, I usually tell a lot of stories and kind of act them out. And that's, uh, this is going to be a lot of teaching. So there's going to be a lot of notes. Maybe you want to pull your camera out and take a picture of some of these, because I would really love for you to discuss this. And I would, what I'm looking and hoping to do is I, as we go into this holiday season, that I really disturb your holiday season, that I, ch that some, that your paradigm gets challenged this year on how you think about stuff. Okay. And so, uh, we're going to look at first Timothy. We're going to start in chapter one, uh, no chapter six, I'm sorry. Uh, verse six. And here's how he starts it out. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, so Paul says, listen, you want to gain something? Yeah. Yeah. I want to gain something. Uh, now the thing about, um, 
Okay, yeah. Paul says, you want to gain something? And Timothy says, yeah. Let, yeah. He goes, let me tell you. Here's how, here's how you gain something. Now, this little Greek word here, uh, gain, is actually comes from the Greek word that we get mega from, like mega billions, mega Powerball, you know, that whole thing, mega. And so what he's saying is like, hey, you want great gain? You want, he goes, godliness with contentment is like a mega gain. You can't gain any more than that. Now, that word godliness kind of scares people because it thinks, because we think performance. Okay, I got to be godly, okay? Godliness actually means to be like God. And so you might go, well, what does it mean to be like God? And that's a good question. To be like God means that you are more loving. Why? Because that's what God is. God is love, right? God so loved the world that he gave. Godliness, in this case, that the apostle Paul's talking to Timothy, is he's talking about Godliness in the New Testament teaches that when we put more, that we, that we honor God when we put other people ahead of ourselves, when we put other people first. See, in the Old Testament, godliness was staying away from things that contaminated you, staying away from sinners, staying away from people that, that, you know, that would make you unclean. Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says, no, 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 we're gonna, I'm gonna change that. We're gonna move towards the mess. We're gonna move towards, we're, I'm gonna touch the untouchable. I'm going, to, I'm going to reach to those people that other people won't touch. I'm gonna deal with them. See, godliness is not staying away from something. Godliness is, in, is about engaging with people in a way that helps them. So Paul says, look, you wanna gain a lot? Put people first. He says, this is what you have to do. Is if you wanna beat godliness with contentment, which is putting people first, that's where you're gonna have mega game, which to we as Americans, we go, come on, Paul. We're not buying that because we're buying everything else. But Paul's not finished. He says, I'm not finished yet. He says, verse seven, he says, for we brought nothing into the world, which you think, what does that have to do with anything, Paul? You're talking about godliness and contentment. Now you're saying we brought nothing into the world. In other words, what he's saying is you were perfectly content when you just got here, when you were a baby. You remember that? You no, remember that? You remember that? You were the most lovable when you had nothing. You were the most cherished when you were a baby and you had nothing. And this is Paul's subtle way of saying you have value beyond what you own. You have value beyond what you possess. You have value beyond, to equate your value based on what you own is a mistake. And then he gives us a corollary. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Which we all know that, right? You're not leaving with anything. I'm not leaving with anything. You've heard the old preacher thing. There's never, you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. I actually saw one one time and I wanted to snap a picture for that. I don't know what they were doing, but I thought, okay, somebody took it with them, right? No, but you are, we're leaving everything. And so what I wanna leave you with is a disturbing question that I hope disturbs you throughout the holidays. And I hope it disturbs you well after New Year's and into the year 2023. And that is this, other than stuff, what will you leave behind? Other than your car, your stuff, what are you going to leave behind? Because we, we know we're going to leave behind our stuff. That's, that's not the question. But other than stuff, what are you going to leave behind? See, and I think if this can become center, front and center of our thinking, if we can, this, if, I, if you will allow this question to become cent, front and center of your thinking, I will make you this promise. If you allow this question of other than stuff, what will I leave? It will begin to curb your, dis your, your discontentment. 
it will begin to curb your appetite for more things. And you might just become one of those extraordinary people that God puts it in their heart to do something for someone else in the world and it changes the world. So to put it in Paul's terminology, let me ask it this way. Will there be great gain because of your time here? Will there be great gain in this community or in the world because of your time here? Or are you just going to leave stuff? Then Paul says, Timothy, so you know how I'm applying this. He's not, I'm not asking you to do it. He's kind of letting us know that he's not a hypocrite. But So he says, this is, this is how I'm working this out in my own life. He says, but if we have, and he's talking about the, his traveling companions, if we have food and if we have clothing, we'll be content with that. Now, he's not asking you to do this, all right? But Paul, he had a family. I mean, he didn't have a family. I'm sorry. Paul didn't have a family. Paul was constantly in peril. Paul was constantly in danger. Paul was, uh, every, every day, he knew that any day could be his last day. And he knows that godliness, in other words, putting other people first, married to contentment, I'm happy with what I have. He says, that's great mega gain. Which then leads me to ask this question about the Apostle Paul. What did he leave behind? He didn't have stuff. So what, what exactly did Paul leave behind? We should all think about this and maybe reconsider our contributions to life. I told my wife one of the things I'm afraid, I just turned 61 last week, and I have grandchildren, but I thought about my grandparents, and I don't know who their parents were. I can't even remember their names. And for some reason, this scares me, is that two generations will go by and nobody will know who I am. And I know I won't be here to be scared of it, but what am I going to leave besides my stuff? What did the Apostle Paul leave? Well, he left behind letters that shaped Western culture for 2,000 years. Hey, Paul, what are you going to leave? What, what are you going to do? You, what about your stuff? Paul's like, I don't have any stuff. So what are you going to do? Well, I think I'm going to write some letters that shapes the world for 2,000 years. You know what else he left behind? He left behind a theology that disrupted an empire. I mean, I wish I could really get into this because it is awesome. But think about this. Paul left a string of churches long after he was gone that we still speak of today, all through Europe and Asia around the Mediterranean Rim, that would change forever how church was done. So Paul, what are you saying? I'm saying, if you want great gain, you have to take your focus off your stuff. Now, let me just, there's nothing wrong with stuff. But do you want to get to the end of your life and all you have to show for it is stuff? Don't you, don't you want more? Don't you want to leave behind something more significant? What is it that needs to capture your attention? That, that, what is it that needs to capture? What is it that breaks your heart? So, and if we can answer that question, then we can answer how can we channel our awareness, our energy as it relates to discontentment so that it makes a difference in the world. In other words, our discontentment wouldn't, wouldn't be with what I don't have, but our discontentment, because there is good discontentment, would make a difference not only in the world today, but maybe even after I'm gone. And then he goes into this, verse 9, he says, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation, into a trap. And here's, here's what he's saying. Anyone who's targeting wealth for wealth's sake. In other words, their number one goal 
is acquiring things, is acquiring money. He said that they're, they're, it's accumulating more stuff that they're first on their list and everybody else is behind them. He says there are some specific traps and temptations that accompany people who their number one goal is to, is to acquire more stuff. To which we think, traps, Eric? I've never even heard of that. I know, because they're traps. You don't see traps, right? But this is why we think if we won the lottery, we, oh, we do fine, right? But see, we don't know the traps that are waiting for us because we've never walked in those shoes. There are traps that you've never experienced before. Now, listen, this isn't just for rich people because you can. it's perfectly normal to sit here and go, oh, he's talking to so-and-so because I can't even pay my bills. No, this isn't for rich people. It's for everyone who wants to get rich. Paul says there's specific traps that are geared just for people who are, their sole focus is accumulating more stuff. And he goes on, he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and to, into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The funny little word, that word plunge, that Greek word, literally means you're driving and the bridge is out and you plunge to your death or you drive off a ravine and you plunge into your debt. De into your death. And his point is, is that unbridled discontentment can be very dangerous. It can plunge you into credit card debt. It can plunge you into a, a lease that's too much for you to pay. It can plunge you into house payment that's too much. It can plunge you into debt. It can plunge you into no savings, no giving. It can plunge you into a place where you don't have enough margin to be able to be generous. You can say, I I'm generous in my heart, but my wallet has been plunged into, into no margin can be plunged into no family time because all oh, we have to work two or three jobs. Paul says you may have stepped into a trap, one that you thought you were too smart to step into. Aren't you glad you came to church today? It's so enlightening and uplifting. Don't worry, he's gonna turn. This is Apostle Paul, this isn't me. I'm just reading you what he said, all right? Paul says, I'm just trying to tell you how the world works. And then he kind of repeats himself to make sure we're paying attention. He says, verse 10, famous verse, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, what, there's 150 people in here? We all know nobody loves money, right? Right? Wrong. You just can't see it in yourself, you know? So how do you know then? How do you know that you love money? Because I've never heard anyone, have you, Kevin? Pastor Kevin, have you ever heard anyone go with these counseling? Yeah, I think my problem is I just love money too much. I think that's what it is. No, you can't see it in yourself. You don't see that. It's, it's, you, you can't see it in the mirror, but other people can see it. So how do you know? Well, here's some questions that you can ask for it. Because number one is, what are you willing to do for it? Think about this. He's talking about the love for money. When you were in love and you were younger, didn't you do some crazy things? I'm in love and I don't care who knows it, right? Sneak out at night, lie to your parents, um, buy something that's super expensive for her and you're in 10th grade and then she breaks up with you three weeks later. You know, crazy things like that. Um, you know, because you're so in love with your boyfriend that you fail English class in your senior year and you have to go to summer school so that you can graduate. Darlene didn't do that. I'm just saying. <laughs> it was you? It wasn't Darlene. Okay. <laughs> but so what, what are you willing to do for money? Because we do crazy things for love. So are, are there things that you do for money that you're like, Ugh. What are you willing to do for it? Who are you willing to hurt for it? Who am I willing to, who, who gets prioritized behind my desire for more stuff? 
In other words, is there somebody at home competing for your stuff? Is there somebody at home competing for your time or for your love? Now, it's funny because, you know, guys will go, well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just doing this for you. I'm just doing this for my family. I'm just doing this to make sure that they're taken care of. Guys, you know what your wife would say? You know what your kids would say? Well, then why don't you just go ahead and be gone then because you're not here anyway. We don't have you or your stuff. So if you're not gonna be here anyway, why don't, if you just go ahead and be gone, then at least we'd have your stuff. Because who are you kidding? No one believes you when you say you have to work those hours. We know you enjoy it. We know you like work. We know you like the accolades. We know you like the promotions. We know you like the travel and the business meetings and the dinners. And you know, we know you like that. And we're left at home. And we can't compete with your stuff. You might be one of those people, if you answer those questions honestly, you love money. Paul says you might have plunged into a trap. So, and he goes on, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, and he basically repeating himself, he's done this three times. He says the love of money, eager for money, and then wanting to get rich. So he basically kind of says it three different ways. Okay, it says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's what he's saying. You get so busy with work and church and the whole God thing and you got a property up at the lake or a timeshare in the mountains or you got a place down at the beach. And over time, he says, rich people, which is us, rich people, they could just get so caught up in their stuff that they just get busy that over time, he says, they just begin to wander from the faith. It's not the plunge word where they just fall off. They just get distracted. And God's, and he says that, and they just, their views on God change, their views on church change, and they begin to wander from the faith. And because of that, he says, they pierce themselves with many pierces or many griefs. Let me tell you, when the problem is when I pierce myself with griefs, I, I don't know it's me. So my tendency is to blame other people because that's what we do. That's why you've got to get a hold of discontentment. Discontentment is dangerous. Not the good discontentment, but the discontentment that is fueled by the awareness of what you don't have, that's dangerous. Paul says, can lead you into a trap and plunge you into many, you know, to uh, piercings. But then, thankfully, he turns a corner and it's gonna get better, you guys. He turns a corner from all this negative stuff and he says some things that are so, so profound and so beautiful. Again, you don't have to be a Christ follower to, to use this to benefit you. Because listen, it's not enough to say, I just won't be discontent anymore. It doesn't work. Because all you gotta do is open the internet, watch TV, drive to the whatever, that don't go to malls anymore, outdoor malls, whatever they are. Is, and, the, and it just fuels that awareness again of what you don't have. So Paul gives us a solution in verse 11. He says, but you, man of God, Flee from all this. You can't just sit around and go, I am not going to be discontent anymore. He says, you have to be aware, for, aware of it and then flee from it. And yes, that may be for me. You know what it means when the fishing catalogs come in the mail? I don't look at them. When the boating, the new boats come out, I don't look at them. But it's not enough to flee. He says, don't just flee from it. You've got to pursue something else. What do you pursue? He says, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, 
Faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. In other words, what you're doing is deciding my chief pursuit is gonna be righteousness. What is that? Doing the right thing. My chief pursuit is gonna be building my faith. I'm gonna pursue God's plan for my life. In other words, contentment can be found by redirecting our pursuit. Instead of putting our eyes on what we don't have and becoming aware of what we don't have, which fuels discontentment, contentment is found by redirecting. Because he's not saying, I'm just not going to be discontent. I'm not going to be discontent. I'm not going to be discontent. What he's saying is, I'm going to chase something. I've got to redirect my pursuit. Now, here's what you have to remember when Paul wrote this. Paul, before he became a Christian, he was, you know, he was a, the Bible says he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was on the top. If you took the social ladder of the Jewish ladder, the Jewish social ladder, he was on the top rung. He was an elite Jew. That meant he was rich, powerful, and he had influence. And then he became a Christian and he had nothing. So the apostle Paul knew what it was like to have everything and he knew what it was like to have nothing. So he's not dissing rich people. But here's what he's about to say. And this ha- he says, this has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with how much money you make, earn, or have. It has nothing to do with how much you own or what you've acquired or what you've accomplished. And here's why I say that. Because then he addresses rich people. Listen to this. Tells Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to, and I'm just going to stop there. Because when I say that, most of us go, he's not talking to me because I have struggled paying my rent, you know, whatever. But the truth is, if you have extra, he's talking to you. If you go home today and there's an Amazon box in your front porch and you don't know what it is until you open it, that means you have extra. If you have change in your ashtray, you have extra. If you're one of those guys like me or women like not me. You go to Home Depot or Target and you have one thing that you're going to get and you walk out with a cart full of stuff that you didn't know you needed when you walked in there, you have extra. If you have a refrigerator in your garage because you can't fit everything in the refrigerator in your kitchen, you have extra. He says, those who have extra don't be, and we think he'll say something like, don't be so rich. Don't, don't be so greedy. No, look what he says. Command those who are rich in this present world, those who have extra, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And now remember, he's talking to us, don't be, uh, who, that have extra. And when he means hope in wealth, that phrase, what this means is, don't put it out front. Don't put the accumulation of stuff as first. Don't make it number one in your life. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? By, pursuing, by placing something else's first. He says the next verse, but to put their hope in God. And I love this verse. One of my most favorite verses in the Bible. Maybe some of you didn't even, might not know is in there. Put your hope in God. Look at this. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Did you even know that was in the New Testament? Wait a minute. God has given you everything for you to enjoy. God has given you all this. See, he's not against you having stuff. He's against the stuff having you. He says, I want you to enjoy what God has given. This is what Paul's saying. I want you to enjoy what God has given you, but I don't want you to be dissatisfied with what you don't have. That you're not able to enjoy what you do have. 
I just got a house in April. It's new and it's, it's new to me and it's bigger and it's on the water. And I go to my friend's house and I come back and they go, this kitchen sucks. And now I can't enjoy what I have because I, I've become dissatisfied with what I have because I've seen what I don't have. And Paul says, God gave you everything to enjoy. And if you'll just be satisfied with what you have, then you won't be dissatisfied with what you don't have. So how, Paul, how do we do that? Paul says, I'll tell you. Verse 18, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. He's talking to rich people, right? He says, command rich people to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Paul's saying that the way to contentment is to be, do good things, be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. Now you think, why does he have to tell rich people to be good in good deeds? Because rich people, we're busy, right? Plus we end up doing what we want to do because we can do it. That after a while, that might stretch out to where we go for a period of time and we haven't done anything good for anyone else. Because what is godliness? Placing other people higher than yourself. What is godliness? Helping other people attain to what they can attain. Putting other people first. But because we're rich and we're just, we can be distracted with more things, we become first on the list and there goes a stretch of, of time where we haven't done anything. Because when we're wealthy, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. But again, do you want to get to the end of your life and all you have to show for it is stuff? So he says, command them to be rich in good deeds. In other words, when they look at you and they look at someone, they go, man, they have a lot of stuff. Somebody else could go, yeah, but you should see what they do for the community. Oh my gosh. You should see what they do for the for, the, for uh, foster kids. You should see what they do for the poor. You should see what they do for the homeless. Paul says, I want you to do more than the average person. Why? Because you have more than the average person. And I don't think you want to get to the end of your life and just leave stuff. And this is, this is Paul's way of t saying, tell rich people, this is, this is Paul, remember he's talking to a pastor. Be like me talking to Kevin going, Kevin, tell the rich people in your church to develop a lifestyle of giving and to develop a lifestyle of generosity and develop a lifestyle of sharing. Otherwise, they're just gonna consume their way through life and at the end of the life, they're gonna end up with nothing to show for it. And then he gets to the good part. Are you ready for this? Then he says, and this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves and a firm foundation for the coming age so that, and this is what I talked about in the beginning, that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, when you wrestle discontentment to the ground, when you can get a hold of this, when you allow the most important things in life to have your undivided attention, when you come to the realization that there is more to life than the things that you own or acquire or what you make or how much you have, he says, now when you get to that place, you will have a life that is truly life. You will experience in this life what it's like to truly live. And if anyone could say this would be the apostle Paul because he lived it. He lived in a life where he had everything and then he had nothing. And he said, I'm more content now. I've got godliness with contentment is great gain. See, this is our invitation right here. This sentence, this scripture is our invitation because life becomes truly life when it's given away. Think about that. It's not about what you leave. In, in fact, in God's realm, you could say it this way, the value of life is determined by how much of it was given away. When you go to a funeral, you never hear about how much they owned. You never hear about how much they possessed. You never hear about how much they hoarded. What you hear about is what they did for others. 
And if they didn't do anything for others, then <laughs> it's a horrible funeral. So Paul was right. The very first sentence that we said, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is mega gain. So what if we reprioritize ourselves? What if we, what if we reprioritized our life? What if we enjoyed what we have so that we didn't plunge ourselves into ruin? Because discontentment is bridled by redirect, redirecting our awareness. Instead of becoming aware of what we don't have, what if this holiday season we became aware of what other people don't have? Guess what that does? That curbs your discontentment. So how do you do that? Well, as a pastor to your pastor, I'm going to give you same thing that Paul said. Paul told Timothy, tell the rich people to do this. I'm going to tell you the same thing. Number one, do some good things. Do some good things. If you're looking for specifics, I'm not going to give you the specifics. You guys are smart people. You go to Vortex Church. That already tells me that you're smarter than the average Albemarlian. Is that how you say them? Albemarlian? Is that how you say it? What? Yeah, okay. You're, at, you're smarter than the average Albemarlian, so you can come up with some things. You know, do some good things. Do some, find some good things. What if you find some things that you can do that better your community, better your church, better your family, better your neighborhood. Number two, be rich in good deeds. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, if you're an adult here, we all like to track our numbers. We track how much is in our savings account, checking account, our investment portfolios, your real estate. If you're into stocks, we, we look at those numbers, right? We want to see what we're doing. What if you created a good deeds account that you kept track? You know, I'm sure you guys do a serve day once a year here, right, Kevin? You know, we did a serve day and I went to, we, I, I served at a place that takes foster kids and puts them in homes with families and it's this big ranch type spread. Each family has their own house. And they, uh, and they have volunteers come on Saturday and do, you know, do, do uh, landscaping. And I went on our serve day and I got to drive a John Deere. I was like, can I come back here on other Saturdays? They're like, yeah, we take volunteers every Saturday. What if you had an account like that and you kept track of your good deeds account instead of not just, because here's, here's what, if you took Paul seriously, he says, command rich people to do good things and to be rich in good deeds. You want to curb your discontentment? You want to curb this dissatisfaction with what you have? Begin to keep an account of your good deeds and go, oh, I need to make a deposit this week. I haven't made a deposit lately. Why am I doing that? Because I'm going to curb my discontentment. And then lastly, what's number three? Is to be generous and willing to share. And listen, that's Generosity is actually the antidote to discontentment. Generosity is the antidote to selfishness. And generosity isn't always natural. There's some people that are more generous than others, but some people, you have to just be generous. You have to do it like this. Oh yeah, I'd like to give you my, whatever it is. Yeah, I'm gonna give you my, I'm gonna say a Game Boy. What is it now? Xbox, they have the Xbox that are like this. I'm going to give, you ever, uh, believe me, I've had to do it. I've, back when I gave a missionary my iPod or my expensive Oakley sunglasses, and you're like this, yes, I'd like to give this to you. And they're trying to take it, you know, and you're like, why? It's not in my heart yet, but I know but by doing it in my actions, I can change my heart. So generosity is the antidote to selfishness and discontentment, but it's also, usually generosity comes because you have margin. But he says, be generous and willing to share. What does that mean? Sometimes I don't have extra, but hey, dad, can I use the boat? How about you use that old nasty John boat? Not my good boat. He says, be, what, why would Paul want us to do that? Why would God want us to do that? It's not because he wants me to give my boat away, because he wants to get my heart. 
wants to get my heart and my boat. If my heart is wrapped around my boat, God, I don't want to get to that place because I love fishing and I love my boat, but I don't want it to become before me and God. So I have to do these things. I have to be generous and be willing to share. So let me close this up. Would you please, no matter what you have or don't have, would you put somebody ahead of you financially? Would you put somebody ahead of you in deeds? Is there something that breaks your heart that, that you see out there that needs to be done that you can begin to place first in priority? Is there an area that you can make a difference in your community, your neighborhood, your family, or even the world? Because if you do this, what you will do is you will enjoy what you have and you will not be discontent with what you don't have. In other words, if you do this, you'll enjoy what you do have and it won't bother you what you don't have. And guess what? When you get to that place, God gives you everything freely to enjoy and you're gonna lay hold of a life that is truly life. Now, here's how much I want this for you. And I, look, I don't love you nearly as much as that man right there, okay? And I think he would say this to you. Find a place. If, if, you, if you can't trust this, this is what he would say because he loves you so much and he wants this for you. Because this is true life. This is not something, that he, it's not something that he wants from you. It's something that he wants for you. And he wants it for you so much that he would say this, and I would say it to my church. And if you can't feel like you, if you don't feel like you can do that here, then go to a place that you trust, that you know that you can do it with all of your heart, but just do it. Get to this place because we want you to have life. It's not about what we want from you. It's what he wants for you. And he wants you to find a true life that is a true life that is worth living and that you don't get to the end of your life and go, all you have left to, get to, is to show is stuff. That's where you find true life. And Kevin wants that for you. Pastor Kevin wants that for you. I want that for you. And if you can't do it here, then find a place or an organization that you can. Because contentment with godliness and you're godly. How do you become godly? By receiving what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Not by the, your words, not by your actions and accumulating you know, all these good deeds. That doesn't make you godly. Godliness comes when you receive what Jesus Christ did. And then contentment is mega, mega gain. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus who died on the cross for us so that we can be right with you. Now, you may be out here and you may be thinking, what does that have to do with finances? See, that's the godliness part. Jesus came so that you could be right with him. And there'd be nothing in the way, there'd be no, no barriers in between you and the Father. That when you receive what Jesus did on the cross, when you put, confess and put your trust in him, you are now right before him. You're right before the Father. You took Jesus' rightness and you've got it now. Paul says, marry that with contentment and you're gonna have mega life. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to not just have eternal life and to not just be right with you, but God, that we can do something that makes a difference in the world and the community and we live with, that live in. And all we have to do is be content with what you've already freely given us to enjoy. And that when we are willing to share and that we're rich in good deeds, that we can find what life truly is, that true life comes when it's given away. Father, we thank you so much for this, and I pray this would be disturb us, this question, other than our stuff, what will we leave behind? I pray, God, it disturbs us for the rest of the year and into the new year. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.